As we come to this next section of Acts, Paul faced the question that perhaps we might face. We come to an opportunity to share the gospel. Will we prioritize what is best for us personally in terms of relationships, in terms of safety, in terms of others' opinions of us? Or will we we prioritize speaking and defending the gospel clearly? Paul had a sort of a split purpose in what he sought to accomplish here. He was presenting the gospel primarily to his own people, but his actions and his words were also a testimony and an example to the Romans who were holding him captive. More so in the coming chapters, but even in this chapter as well. So, to review from where we had been a few weeks back, Paul had gone into the temple. They saw him in the temple. They made assumptions that he had brought a Gentile into the temple with him because they had seen this Gentile with Paul in the marketplace previously and they seize him and are seeking to kill him. The Romans step in to to sort of stop the riot and to restore peace. And there is such an uproar. Everyone is shouting this thing and that thing and the other thing. The Roman commander can't find out what's going on, wants to get to the bottom of the situation, so he pulls Paul aside. Paul is brought into the barracks of the Roman soldiers, and he says to the commander, Can I speak to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Now, this might seem like an interesting exchange. What's the significance of this? The commander, I think, is surprised that Paul is an educated man and is able to communicate with him and all of these sorts of things because it seems that at first the Roman commander is assuming that the reason this riot is being stirred up is because Paul is some kind of a rabble-rouser. He says perhaps he is, verse 38, the Egyptian who stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 of the assassins out into the wilderness. So at first he thinks Paul is a criminal, much like Barabbas, or much like some of these others that Gamaliel mentions, who says this person led people astray, that person led people astray, Uh, God will work it out so that if they are not the ones who are going to succeed, if God's hand is not on them, they're going to fail and, and be destroyed and those sorts of ideas. He seems to have made the same kind of assumption. Paul's response is essentially that he's a Jew, but he's of Tarsus. It's it's an important city, and he says, let me speak to the people. And some here say, well, then this is not a legitimate account, because having seen the riot and the uproar, what Roman commander in his right mind would let Paul speak to the very people that were trying to probably beat him to death? But if we consider what's going on, if he had mistakenly assumed Paul's identity, it's quite reasonable for him to think that the Jews had also made false assumptions about Paul, and both in the interest of finding out what was going on and in the interest of sort of calming the riot, if he let him sort of clarify what what the circumstances were and who he was and all those sorts of things, perhaps the Roman commander thought that he would solve two problems at once, his own curiosity and the uh, sort of the, the, the calming of the people. 
how do we know that this is not primarily a defense before the Romans? Because at the end of verse 40 it says, when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, saying, so most likely this was probably uh, Aramaic, is what many commentators would agree upon. But Paul is speaking in a language that the people would hear and understand. They would recognize this is not the voice of a foreigner, this is the voice of one of us. And he's going to make three main points. He's going to essentially say, I was one of you, I'm serving God, and I have been faithful to what God has called me to do. He starts out and he says, Hear my defense, brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. When they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. The thing that was setting off the crowd was the assumption that Paul was sort of, had sort of gone over to a Gentile way of life. And the fact that he is speaking in their native language, the fact that he's not showing any signs of um, Gentileness, for lack of a better word, they calm down, they say, all right, we'll hear him out, at least for a few moments. Paul starts out, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting men and women into prisons, and also the high priest and all, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. Paul's establishing his background. I'm a Jew. I have been zealous for the law. You yourselves, who are attacking me, can testify to these facts. The facts are not in question. I am essentially one of you. I have been where you were. I followed God the way that you are. I sought to uphold the law. And we see all this uh, clearly in the Acts 9 and, and before in his uh, attitude toward both the stoning of Stephen and his own zealousness in trying to stamp out those who followed Jesus in the early days of the church. I'm one of you. That's the first part of Paul's defense. And then he moves on and says, And I received a vision. Verse 6, But it happened as I was on my way to approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Get up and go on into Damascus, and there you will be told of all that has been appointed for, for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. It might be helpful at this point for us to turn over to Acts 9 and note some of the similarities and differences between the account in Acts 9 and the account here. First of all, we see in verse 3 of Acts 9, it says, A light from heaven flashed around him. We see a further detail here in Acts 22 that it was a bright light and that there was some connection perhaps between 
the brightness of the light and his temporary blindness that God inflicted upon him. We see also a difference, perhaps, in the verse 7. The men of chapter 9, the men who traveled with him, stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. And it says in verse 9, Those who were with me saw the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. So it seems that they heard a voice, but they didn't understand what it was saying. What's the point of what Luke's trying to communicate here? The vision was specifically for Paul. But the vision was given in such a way that the other people knew this wasn't just some sort of private experience Paul had made up in his head. They saw the light. They heard a sound of a voice. They just didn't understand what was being said. It wasn't for them, but they were witnesses and, test and, and could testify to it having happened. And then the uh, account of Ananias that we see in chapter 9, uh, the vision that God gives to him is not recorded here in chapter 22. So... Some slight differences, but the two accounts do not contradict each other. And I think Paul is giving a, a shortened version of this account simply to make the points that he is seeking to make to the Jewish crowd. We come to verse 12. A certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time, I looked up at him. And he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And so in this longer section, verses 6 through 16, Paul says, I was one of you. I saw a vision. And what did that vision reveal to him? Both the vision and the communication from Ananias revealed to him that he was now going to serve God, not according to the law, not according to the way of the Pharisees, not according to the way of life that he had been following up to that point, but he was going to serve the Jesus of the very way that he had been seeking to stamp out. We see here the will of God, verse 14. The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will. We see here a an echo of what Paul will later say in several of his epistles, that he was made a steward of the mystery of the gospel. What was that mystery? The mystery of the gospel was that the gospel would be shared with the Gentiles. He hasn't gotten to that point yet, but this is sort of the precursor to those ideas that he refers to several times in the epistles. It says here in verse 14, to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. Think about this. Paul, the persecutor, now we'll see the very one that he has been persecuting. We'll hear on several occasions an utterance from his mouth, appointing him to different tasks. And the purpose of Paul's life changes, verse 15, from persecuting the church to verse 15, you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Think about the irony of what's happening here. Paul says in verse 4, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. My goal was to bring those who are in Damascus to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. What is Paul standing as right now? He's a prisoner. What is he on the verge of having happened to him, to be punished. 
So this has sort of come full circle from I was the one doing this to others to I have experienced this at various points in my ministry to now it is happening to me in Jerusalem just as I intended it to happen to those long before. Was this a form of karma, cosmic justice, something like that? No. God told Paul when he set out on this journey to be an apostle as God had appointed him to be, that he was going to face suffering and persecution and difficulty. And so this was not, you did this to other people, so now it's happening to you. It was rather his proclamation of the message that landed him in prison, not some sort of retribution by God or some other impersonal force. And so Paul is now standing on trial, giving his defense uh, the trial not being a formal trial, but there is this question of how are the Jews going to respond to his words? We should probably talk about what it says in verse 16. Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Does this mean that baptism cleanses us of our sins? Is baptism essential to salvation? There are two extremes that we could go to. One is to say, if you don't get baptized, you're not saved. The other is to say, if you get saved, you don't really have to worry about being baptized because it's just a picture. Baptism is an essential first step of obedience and faith. It does not take away our sins. So, how do we know this? Because there are examples of those, like the thief on the cross, whom God said, you will be in my presence, clearly no opportunity for him to be baptized hanging there on the cross. How do we know that it is yet something important to do? Because in Acts 8, as soon as the Ethiopian eunuch believes, he says, there is water, let's stop, let's do this, even though it's in the middle of the desert. So we have to hold those two truths in tension. You do not have to be baptized to be in God's presence when you die. You do need to be baptized as a sign of obedience to God. The way that Luke phrases it here is that he is describing the picture, the cleansing, the symbolism that water baptism provides of the spiritual reality that has actually taken place at the point of Paul's conversion. The waters of baptism do not wash away our sins, but they are a picture of of what God has already done in our hearts that has, in fact, dealt with our sin. So Paul now is a genuine follower of the way that he had sought to destroy, of the Jesus whose people he was persecuting, of the God whose will he opposed and now is serving. I was one of you. I had the vision. What has God called him to do? there is a further clarification of his ministry. Verse 17, It happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance, had a vision, that sort of idea, and I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who are slaying him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Paul's speech is interrupted at this point. We'll come back to that in a moment. But this incident is only recorded here. 
It was apparently such a brief visit to Jerusalem that Paul doesn't even mention it when he lists sort of the trajectory of his life in the book of Galatians. In the book of Galatians, he talks about the fact that um, I, was, uh, I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who are apostles before me. So he went up to Jerusalem briefly, according to Galatians 1 and verse 17. According to this passage, he went up to Jerusalem. According to Galatians 1 and verse 16 and 17, he did not go to Jerusalem for the purpose of getting approval and a stamp of authority from the existing apostles. It seems that he went to Jerusalem, had this vision of the temple, immediately left Jerusalem so rapidly that he doesn't even record it in Galatians chapter 1. His main encounter with the apostles was not until three years later, and he was only there for about 15 days. And again, not to receive authority from the apostles, which is the point that he's developing in the book of Galatians, but rather to, uh, to basically, I think, to communicate to Peter, we're on the same page, we're serving God, God's called me to go to the Gentiles, he's called you to go primarily to the Jews, we are serving God's purpose in different spheres and in different ways, but the same God, the same purpose. So we have this account, this vision that he has while in Jerusalem. We would think that Paul, having been one of them, and Paul, having persecuted those who followed the way, would give him some sort of credibility with the Jews. But it seems that either A, that was not the main point, or B, God's purpose was for Paul to go to the Gentiles. And I think it's interesting that in Paul going to the Gentiles, his Jewish heritage still did not win him favor with the Jews. Why was that? Because their objection was not ultimately to Paul's background, but to his present belief. I think that there is perhaps a lesson in this for us in that we might think that so-called common ground will help us to succeed in our witness of the gospel. And here's the way that I think we should think about that. You may find yourself in proximity to people because of working the same job, having the same interests, growing up in the same place, whatever it might be. That provides an opportunity for you to share the gospel. It does not add any additional weight to the gospel presentation. Because ultimately the thing that is going to persuade people to believe the gospel message is not we're from the same hometown. It's not we both like cooking. It's not we both work for whatever company. It is that God's Spirit works in their heart and mind with the message of the gospel. So see those connections as opportunities to build relationships, as opportunities in which to give the gospel, but don't trust in them to bring people to Christ. Why does the crowd, verse 22, respond so harshly to Paul's words in verse 21? I think the main reason is, in Paul's statement, God has sent me to the Gentiles, they see confirmation of the suspicion they've had all along, which is, Paul doesn't really care about us, he cares about the Gentiles, he follows Gentile ways, all of those sorts of things. 
despite the fact that over and over again, Paul's process in coming to a new place was to go first to the Jews, present the gospel to them, and then go to the Gentiles, despite them knowing that. Some of them that were there had seen Paul do that firsthand, and they still opposed him, and they still were looking for excuses to get rid of him. One of the commentators said that in verse 22, we see a definitive rejection by the Jews in Jerusalem of the gospel message, and the city sort of, we really don't see any more mentions of it. Did that mean that God had forgotten the people of Israel? No. Paul makes that clear in the book of Romans. We see them again in the book of Revelation. That being said, there is very clearly a rejection by the people of the message of the gospel. They rejected it from Christ. Well, first of all, they rejected it from John the Baptist. Then they rejected it from Christ. Then they rejected it from Peter and the other apostles, the words of Stephen, and now Paul. Their response echoes that which was given at the judgment of Christ. Crucify him. Away with him. What do they say here? Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. As they're crying out and throwing their cloaks off and tossing dust into the air, what's the significance of these actions? We don't have a... Uh, a strong historical precedent that says this is the specific meaning of it, but in context it's clear. They're expressing anger. They're expressing grief. They're ready to take Paul and, and put him to death. Verse 24, the commander ordered Paul to be brought into barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. It's interesting that the suspicion... Um, Presumably in our justice system, you are presumed innocent until proven guilty. In this context, they assumed we're going to have to beat it out of him if we want to arrive at the truth, which is an interesting perspective. But uh, the point was that they were not allowed to do that, as we'll see in the next few verses. When they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? Why does Luke highlight these facts? Because there has been no specific charge brought against Paul. There's been assumptions, there's been a riot, there's been an attempted lynching more or less, but there has not been a formal trial that says here is the law that he has broken and the reason that he deserves death or even a beating for that matter. So Paul is, not merely for the sake of self-interest, but I think as part of this narrative that Luke is presenting, Paul is illustrating the fact that there is no basis on which the gospel message was to be condemned. It was not disconnected from what God had given the Jews. It was not in any way breaking any Roman laws. And so there was no basis for him to be beaten. Verse 26 the commander said, what will you do, for he is a Roman? And so then he wants to verify this. He says, yes. How would he have actually verified it? Apparently, in those days, they would have sometimes had a, uh, a wooden placard that they would have carried about that would have proved their citizenship. The other thing that deterred people from just claiming they were a Roman citizen when they weren't was that there were severe fines and penalties and 
and punishments for those who claimed to be a Roman citizen and weren't. So there was a lot of motivation not to claim it if it wasn't true. And we see this, this interesting contrast. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money, but Paul said I was actually born a citizen. Some people view this as some kind of a bribe that he paid to obtain Roman citizenship. Perhaps it was a legitimate transaction, but the, the irony is the one who is about to commit an injustice against Paul potentially acquired his citizenship sort of secondhand, and Paul had it from birth, and yet Paul is the one who is about to get beaten. There is, there is a, a clear direction of injustice about to be perpetrated against Paul, but then the commander intervenes, verse 29, those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him, and the commander was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman and because he had put him in chains. So this section is bracketed by conversation with the Romans at the beginning, conversation with the Romans at the end, both of which serve to prove that there is no quarrel that the Romans have with Paul other than the fact that he is the object of this riot, and their goal is to both understand what's going on and to try to calm down the people. Paul gives his defense to the Jewish people who reject that defense. But here's the question. Did Paul fulfill what he had set out to do? I think he did. Paul's goal was to go to Jerusalem and proclaim Christ, and Paul was able to do that, perhaps not in quite the same way that Peter did in Acts chapter 2 with the long history and development of the people of Israel. But Paul defends the fact, I was one of you, I encountered Christ, he sent me away, and it seems that he was ready to say more, but the crowd cut him off, which we also see in other instances in the book, like with the account of Stephen, they start stoning him before he finishes his sermon. Paul faithfully defends the gospel, despite the personal threat, despite the potential danger from the Romans, he is faithful to defend the gospel. He has confidence that God's purpose for his life will be accomplished, that his personal comfort in the context of that being fulfilled was not the primary goal, that he needed to be a faithful steward of the message that God had given to him. The fact that he presented God having sent him to the Gentiles before a crowd that was very likely to erupt when he said that, I think bears out the idea that he uh, had a very clear sense that this was a stewardship, a ministry from God that he had to be faithful to, and he wasn't going to cover up even if it made life easier for him. We're not likely to be put on trial in the same way that Paul was. There was, was a unique set of circumstances. But I think the parallel is very clear that we have a responsibility to present the gospel clearly even to those who may not want to hear it, even if it causes some loss to ourselves for having presented it, and trusting God in his sovereignty to watch out for us in that context. So how might this come up? You have someone who you know, who's an unsafe family member, who may not want to talk to you if you present the gospel to him or her. Are you going to do it? 
You don't have to do it in a belligerent way. You don't have to do it in a hateful way. But we have a responsibility to present the truth. You have a boss who doesn't want to hear about the fact that you're a Christian, and you're going to get passed over for a promotion if you are open about your faith. I'm not saying neglect doing your job. I'm not saying hold Bible studies for three hours a day instead of working. But I am saying if you make your faith known in certain places of work, your career will suffer. Are you willing to accept that? You might have good neighbors or people that you have known for a long time. And if you are open with them about the gospel, it may create tensions. What is your primary goal? Presenting the gospel accurately and clearly and faithfully or preserving those relationships? There may come a day, it's hard to say when that might be, where there could be loss of property, work, status in society, like there was for the early church because of following Christ. Are we more attached to the things of this life than we are to the Savior we claim to follow? Paul was willing he didn't go out of his way to get a beating. We see that from the end of this passage. But he was willing to face suffering for the sake of the gospel. He was willing to speak it clearly, knowing that it would not be well received. He was willing to finish following Christ well. And at the end of things, that's all God calls any of us to do. Jeremiah had, as far as we know, no converts. But he was faithful to the ministry that God gave to him. Paul went through great suffering, but he was faithful to the ministry that God gave him. John, the apostle, lived a long life, but he was faithful to the ministry that God gave him. Abel lived a fairly short life, but he followed God faithfully. So whether your life is short or long, whether your life is easy or hard, the test for us is not the number of converts because we've proclaimed the gospel. It's not all of the other things that we tend to measure success by. It's do you faithfully fulfill the responsibilities that God has given to you? And if you do, how will Jesus receive you? Well done, good and faithful servant. That, I think, is what Paul had in mind when he presented his defense before the Jews in the context of the Romans, not knowing specifically what would happen next, but knowing that it would not be easy. That's what God calls us to do as well. Follow me. Share my word. Live faithfully, and I will reward you. Is that good enough for us? Let's pray. Lord, sometimes we believe the partial truth or misrepresentation of Christianity that says, follow me and everything will get better. 
follow me and everything will go according to plan. Follow me and everyone will be your friend. I'd be popular in books by Joel Osteen and all of these other people who make it sound like everything is just fun and games and riches and parties. But the reality is that following you costs us. But it's a cost that we ought to be willing to pay because the alternative is who is willing to gain the whole world and lose his own soul. Lord, help us to follow you faithfully, even though it means difficulty. Help us to follow you faithfully, even though it means we may not have that thing, that position, that dream that the person next to us who doesn't know you may have. Help us to see that having Christ is enough. Help us to see that there is joy in the midst of the perplexities of life, even as Ecclesiastes has been reminding us. Help us to be faithful. You haven't given us the same ministry as Paul, Lord. You haven't necessarily called us to walk the same path, but you have called us to follow you faithfully. Lord, help us to see that as the goal of our life, not how much money we have in our bank account, not what people around us think of us, not what uh, the things that we enjoy doing, not to be known for those things, but to be known as a faithful servant of Christ. We pray that you would bless this afternoon, that we would uh, find joy in you and serve you well. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.